Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have uh, two amazing students back to work with me today on discussing ketamine and PTSD. Uh, let's do introductions. Uh, let's see, Sarah, I think we started with you last time. Mm -hmm. Let's do it again because you're on my immediate left. And by the way, that's actually a really cool kind of sweater you got there. It has the Rocky Vista logo on it. Yeah. I'm a little bit uh, as... Uh, <laughs> As my friends in um, my gaming world would say, a little bit jelly. <laughs> a little bit jelly. Is that the right phrase? Yep, that's what the that's the term the kids are using these yep. days. Kids these days. Right? Kids these days. <laughs> so uh, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Sarah Tang. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University, and I'm doing my psych rotation at the Utah State Hospital. Good to have you here. And Spencer? Yeah, uh, Spencer Nakamoto, also a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University and also doing my um, ro psych rotation at uh, Utah State Hospital. Great to have you two back. Spencer, um, your last name. Mm -hmm. I have never heard anybody pronounce the Mo-To with the emphasis on Mo. Uh-huh. And Tope, is that, is that the correct way you would say your last name? I believe so, yeah. Um, at least to my knowledge, yes. <laughs> I, I'm guessing your parents say Nakamoto. Correct, yeah. And, and am I saying that close to correct now? Yeah, uh -huh. And uh, Tang mm -hmm. is a little bit easier. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's technically Tong, but it's felt like Tang, like the orange drink, and so it's just easier that way. Oh, well. <laughs> but I also go by Nakamoto if you want to just like say it quick like that. So, so if I really just am interested in butchering other people's names, I can say Tang and Nakamoto. Yeah, no. But how about if I try and, like I kind of like being called Kent. Uh -huh. So <laughs> I've decided that if I like to be called by, you know, the way I like to be called, I try to call other people by how they like to be called. So Sarah Tong uh -huh. and Spencer Nakamoto. Uh -huh. That's so cool. I appreciate you guys uh, taking a minute to help me yeah, uh, be better at names. Will you forgive me for butchering your name oh, the entire rotation? Of course. You're too kind. <laughs> so... Uh, Yesterday, I think briefly, we talked about the the directions you guys are headed. I think Spencer, you said uh, that you're very interested in in uh, going into anesthesia with some thoughts about internal medicine. Correct. And uh, Sarah, you um, have a little bit more mixed thoughts. Family medicine, primarily, with some thoughts of anesthesia, perhaps. And this podcast grew out of your experiences in family medicine. Can you tell me a little bit about those experiences that led to this podcast? Yeah, and so I was in my family medicine rotation, and I was kind of reviewing medication lists with a patient, and I saw that they were they had ketamine, but there wasn't like a dose or anything. And I asked my preceptor about it, and they were like, yeah, they, they have these ketamine clinics that end people like, go for uh, major mood disorder like depression and also it has really good efficacy with um, PTSD and so we actually had a couple of patients that were kind of going to these ketamine clinics to receive these treatments and so I was kind of interested because I've never heard of ketamine for PTSD before and so that was a new concept to me because I always thought ketamine was kind of like the um, well, ketamine's like just a general anesthetic, and I thought it was mainly used in the anesthesia world. And so it was um, a surprise to see it making an appearance in the psychiatric hmm. realm. So, As I recall, you said, hey, we want to do a podcast on ketamine and PTSD. And I said, as long as there's good data. Mm -hmm. 
and a week later you came back and said, I'm not sure we should do this. <laughs> yeah. And yet here we are. So first of all, I think this led us into a, what I thought was a phenomenal discussion about um, peri, perisurgical anesthesia. Uh, my younger brother, he got after me. He listened to the podcast oh. yesterday. He got after me for calling me calling him my little brother. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's true. He's uh, he's a he's my little brother. <laughs> um, he he actually very much enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And so I think we had a great discussion yesterday, and uh, today I think we've got another great discussion about ketamine and kind of the direction things are going. So you you had this great experience, and um, first of all, you had a preceptor that told you it's a great treatment for PTSD. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure the data completely support that statement. Yeah. And and yet you also had patients who were saying it was. It was pretty life-changing, like, for some of these patients. Like, they said that it really decreased their symptom severity. Mm -hmm. The only thing was my preceptor kind of described it as more of a Band-Aid. More of a Band-Aid. So, so like, it was repeated treatments, but after, like, a couple, two to three weeks, they'd have to go back and get uh, another infusion. So, So even though the people that you were talking to anecdotally... Yeah. This is making a difference. Yeah. And and even though that might fit with some of the data we're going to say later, mm-hmm. it, it isn't like this is a widely accepted practice. Where are we at with uh, FDA-approved treatments for medications, medication FDA-approved treatments for PTSD? So for FDA-approved treatments of PTSD, um, mainly it's going to be your SSRIs, um, paroxetine, and sertraline. So I think those are the only two that have the FDA approval, is that correct? I believe so. Uh-huh. Now, there are a lot of medications that are used off-label. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day when SSRIs were not yet off-patent, this would have been earlier in my career, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of uh, attempts by the different pharmaceutical manufacturers to claim their territory. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I think it's very interesting that some SSRIs tried to get the FDA approval for PTSD, but the data didn't pan out for them. So I'm not entirely sure that every SSRI can be used for PTSD. Mm-hmm. And in fact, mm-hmm. I think some of the data we read was that SSRIs, th- th- we're left wanting mm-hmm. by SSRIs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the problem that was mostly seen with the SSRIs is it has a long onset. So it takes a while for it to like kick in and start to work. And so um, and that's if it does kick in. It, that's yeah. if it does kick in, correct. Yeah. I think and the NNTs were fairly, they were they were not as robust as we would like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so people have looked for a lot of other medications to try and treat PTSD. I think we talked about benzodiazepines for treatment of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me what, what you've learned about treatment with of PTSD with benzodiazepines. Yeah, so I think we were talking with you and you, <laughs> we were kind of like, I was surprised to learn that why not why not use benzos for PTSD? It seems like it would sedate and kind of give that effect of lowering symptoms for PTSD. And you had said that it's not very effective and that the data is kind of not all there. And in some cases, it can actually worsen symptoms of PTSD. So I'm, I'm going to um, make a statement that I probably can't back up, and that is that the kinds of strategies that seem to be as helpful as anything for PTSD 
appear to be things like EMDR, mm -hmm. uh, things like um, trauma-focused CBT, TFCBT, mm -hmm. and uh, exposure therapies, right? These seem to be quite helpful. Um, and I'm now here's the, that's the accurate part. The part that might not be as easy to validate <laughs> is, I'm under the impression that benzodiazepines, which interfere with learning, might get in the way of those therapies being helpful, mm. right? So, so benzodiazepines have cognitive effects, and and if some of our best treatments require good cognitive functioning, then mm -hmm. perhaps they're not helpful. I'm not sure that that's something I've read somewhere that has been validated. Although I think Edna Foa, who is one of the more um, active writers about treatment for PTSD, has has and who has spearheaded the guidelines for treatment of PTSD has certainly not been a fan of benzodiazepines, and I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, so benzodiazepines, I think you also read a little bit more on this. Share with me more of what you learned about benzodiazepines and PTSD. Yeah, so we found this really cool, um, it was kind of a systematic review and meta-analysis on benzos for um, PTSD, and it was done by uh, Dr. Jeffrey Guina and colleagues. And they kind of did this, they went through pretty much a good good majority of all, all the articles and um, clinical trials they could find on this topic. And um, some of the interesting things that, that I thought were um, pretty, I guess, conclusive in terms of like efficacy and inefficacy. Um, so they were able to find about only two, two randomized control trials that were showing efficacy for PTSD, and it wasn't even PTSD core symptoms. It was mostly just the anxiety portion of it. And, and was it also sleep? Uh, yes, and sleep, correct. And sleep, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. and, but um, they also kind of went through those trials individually and kind of found that the evidence wasn't super strong. Um, they kind of gave it, they, they rated the level of evidence uh, from an A to a D, um, D being the worst, A being the best, and they gave it a D level. So mm. even, even though there was randomized control trials done, it was pretty low. For the treatment of PTSD. Exactly, correct. And, and then I think it was interesting because the start of this article, they said something along the lines of benzodiazepine use remains controversial, mm -hmm. with advocates pointing out the benefit to sleep and anxiety. Yes. And now what do the detractors point out? Yeah, so on the detractors, um, for example, some of the inefficacy, I guess, qualities they were looking for were just increase in depression, decrease in sleep, increase in nightmares, anxiety, aggression. Um, increase in substance use, um, increase in startle reflex, um, and they were able to find, well, let's see, 12 observational studies and up to six other trials um, that showed, an, an, I guess, a more likely to be inefficacy um, for the use of benzodiazepines for PTSD, and they gave that a level evidence of an A. So. In fact, I think not just inefficacy, but uh, harm. Correct, yeah. Harm. Mm -hmm. So benzodiazepines probably cause harm. So we've now talked a little bit about the treatments for PTSD that have FDA approval. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the medications that are commonly used, benzodiazepines, for treatment of, of uh, PTSD. Not helpful, harmful. Mm -hmm. We have mentioned three of the treatments that might show up on the shelf exam, which are EMDR, uh, trauma-focused CBT, mm -hmm. and the third one is exposure therapy, right? I think mm -hmm. most of the time when I talk to students, they are um, getting questions that seem to address exposure therapy, probably with an SSRI. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so if you're looking at the shelf, that's kind of the direction to go, and probably to avoid benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's probably also worth mentioning, what is PTSD? Mm -hmm. we, we probably should have done that earlier, right? Yeah. Uh, who has that? I'll I can yeah. go over it. Yeah. 
So PTSD criteria um, usually takes place after a, a stressful event, usually within six months of traumatic event. Is that correct, Dr. Andrew? Yeah, so there are some timelines that are very, very important. Uh, acute stress disorder mm -hmm. and one. is it one to six? I want to Say it's one less than a month. Okay, yeah. and then what's two months or one month to six months? Adjustment. Or have you got it backwards? Okay, we're going to just scratch <laughs> this whole part of the podcast <laughs> and just say that you have to have it for more than six months. Yeah, six months. And that timelines are incredibly important in the shelf exam. So when you have had a traumatic experience mm -hmm. and you are having a number of symptoms, and we're going to go over those symptoms in mm -hmm. just a moment, and they have a duration of more than six months, you are no longer in acute stress disorder or adjustment phase or whatever it else is that could be uh, an alternative. You are now in the PTSD phase, right? right? And then I think there are some specifiers not as important for the shelf exam that talk about chronic PTSD. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, when we talk about ketamine in just a few minutes, we're going to talk about what's called chronic PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we'll get to that when we get there. What are the, after an exposure, mm -hmm. so I'm kind of a caveman. I mentioned that a couple of times before, right? Mm -hmm. I, I try to find the simplest way of thinking about a diagnosis. To me, the diagnosis is about having an exposure that threatens the integrity of your being. Right. Mm -hmm. You might not even have to be right there, but yeah. it has to be in some way so proximally close to you mm -hmm. that it shakes you, so to speak. Right, even like dealing with the aftermath of something traumatic um, can lead to PTSD for sure. And then the second part of that is you have to have reliving events mm -hmm. that are disruptive to your life. Yeah. Now what am I missing? Um, avoidance of ex the external reminders that kind of bring you back to that traumatic situation. So I'm going to claim that disrupt your life is avoidance. Mm -hmm. I, like I said, caveman, I'm going right. to try and make this work. Right. What else? Right. How else? What other criteria fit in that kind of statement the way I see the world? And then what might fit outside of that? So I think uh, you can have flashbacks. Mm -hmm. You can have nightmares as that reliving experience. Yep. Mm -hmm. There can be a lot of different kinds of things that trigger those memories and take you back to that time. And maybe the one part I am not adding is that you need to have that emotional response associated with those yeah. reliving experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those changes in like mood, mm -hmm. um, decreased interest. Um, I think it's usually comorbid with depression, severe depression as well. Seems to have a great deal of comorbidity. So am I at least close on my caveman version? Yeah. Trauma. Mm -hmm. reliving events and they have to disrupt your life right and those reliving events need to have some pretty strong emotions with them mm -hmm. right and then obviously there's more to the diagnosis but if you can keep track of those things you're probably in a pretty good place yeah. and six months yeah six months all right so um let's jump from that now so so there's obviously a lot missing from our we don't have good tools in our psychopharmacological armamentarium and so ketamine is, is uh, there's now some data about ketamine um, changing moods. I mm -hmm. felt like the data for the infusions was probably stronger than the nasal spray. We had some podcasts mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. And um, this study, we're going to talk about ketamine and another study and how we think ketamine might be helping with PTSD. 
Before we do that, I want to get back into the pharmacology of ketamine. We talked about it a little bit yesterday, but there's a reason why people looked at ketamine. Help me, uh, who of you, which of you is going to talk me through that? Yeah, so it's just more of the pharmacology and like uh, why they were looking at ketamine in particular. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just kind of a brief overview of ketamine. It's an IV anesthetic that exerts inhibition on NMDA receptors, um, which are the receptors for glutamate, which is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. And it, it also is one of the few anesthetics that also have analgesic properties, which is, makes it very interesting. Um, but in terms of why I think they were looking at ketamine was because it is also known as one of the dissociative, it's a dissociative anesthetic, which they think may be able to kind of um, interrupt um, intrusive memories or be able to kind of inhibit um, memory consolidation in, in that way. And I think we talked about that a little bit yesterday. Yeah. Um, was that the, I've got my papers in front of me. Uh, that's the newcomer article, right? The NMDA receptor hypofunction theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that um, increasing doses of ketamine would get we talked about it in terms of psychosis yesterday, positive and negative symptoms, but we also talked about how the increasing dose seems to change learning and memory performance and um, that it's probably dose-dependent. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, like, one of the... Uh... All right, we just had a phone call in the middle of that that I had to answer. I apologize, uh, Sarah. Oh, yeah, so... Um, so why we were looking at ketamine, um, so kind of the pathophys of PTSD is activation of these NMDA glutamate receptors um, kind of leads to an increase in spontaneous intrusive memories. And so the thought is if we can antagonize these NMDA receptors, we can reduce the unwanted traumatic memories. And so um, that's why ketamine was kind of like it acts like right away kind of as an acute um, antidepressant, but it also has this effect on memory, mm -hmm. and which is one of the major concerns for ketamine as a treatment. So, so hold on, I thought it, let me make sure I understand this because I'm not sure I do. Mm -hmm. I was under the impression initially that the impairment in the memory might be one of the reasons why it helped with, with uh, PTSD that it stopped reconsolidation of the negative memories. Yes, yeah. So every time, and let me make sure I understand this in a way, because I, I don't understand it. Um, I think the idea is that if you have an exposure, mm -hmm. original exposure, and then you have a reminder of that in the environment you live in mm -hmm. that brings back those memories, right. it's like you're being re-traumatized every time. Mm -hmm. And the idea is if you can break that, um, renewed memory of trauma which re-traumatizes you right. then the strong emotions and the disruption of your life can slowly fade away and you can learn to live a different way yes yeah that is mm -hmm. correct oh good yeah <laughs> it's but, always good to be on the right page yeah but like the the firing of those like nmda receptors mm -hmm. is kind of what that's the hypothesis that that's what produces the unwanted traumatic memories and by antagonizing them they can kind of not have those intrusive memories. So I know that there's um, a couple of threads that, that also helped build this case. I think you talked to me about some studies that, I, I don't know if they were animal studies or I think they were, uh, 
mouse models with regards to um, traumatizing the animals and pre-medicating at different intervals before to see mm -hmm. some sort of effect. So, so walk me through those studies. Yeah, so some of the, they were case or controlled studies in mice where they would kind of condition a fear response in the mice by either shocking their tail was one of them and then also making them swim around for yeah, a think, long period of time. I think that's called the force swim test, the right? Force it's a, swim it's a test. model for a yes. couple of different uh, mental health Mm. kinds of things, yeah. Yeah, and so once they kind of established this, um, this fear response, um, they kind of gave them a break for a week, mm -hmm. and then they started dosing them daily with um, ketamine. Mm -hmm. And then kind of studying ketamine as a prophylactic uh, agent for PTSD. And then they uh, exposed these mice to um, the trauma again, and the mice that had been receiving uh, the ketamine infusions were more likely to, um, or less likely to have learned helplessness mm -hmm. and uh, just like give up. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was really interesting. So, so ketamine seemed to prevent the typical mouse response to trauma. Yes. To the trauma models that we yes. have. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, we looked at uh, two papers. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're early in the research. One was in the American Journal of Psychiatry, mm -hmm. sometimes called the Green Journal because it has a green cover. I don't know if you guys have seen one of those in my office. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember if I unwrapped one in front of you or not, but they, ha they have a green cover. And uh, uh, like I said, called the Green Journal. And so in theory, some of the higher impact articles will end up in that journal. Mm -hmm. And uh, which, of the, which of those articles was in the Green Journal? I think it was the 15 person. And there was an editorial as a lead up to some of the ketamine studies, right? And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what was the article's name? I think it was the... Ketamine for PTSD. Yep. Well, isn't that special? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of got a kick out of that because I think that's also a play on Special K, which is one of the yep. nicknames um, for right. uh, ketamine. and. Uh, I thought it was going to be more negative than it was, instead it was just an introduction to the article. Mm -hmm. So let's jump to that article, and that is, uh, that's not the Abdallah article, is it? That is no, that's not. No. That's, it's the Crystal article, right? The Stein, Murray Stein. Stein article. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> All right, so tell me about the Stein article. Oh, yeah. Um, so the Stein article, uh, like like uh, Dr. Roundy was saying, it was the article in response to the study by Fetter and colleagues. Who, um, who performed this, uh, this, this um, study on 15 patients um, who were exposed to um, IV ketamine, and they were kind of seeing how they would respond in terms to, for their treatment for um, treatment-resistant PTSD. Okay, hold on. Do I have the articles backwards? Is Stein the one that's... So we had two articles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One was the article that said, we studied 15 people, and one was the article that said, we're going to do a big study. Oh, so which, the, which one are you referring to? I don't know. The, the big study, I think, was the... Um, Abdallah? Is yes. That is that the Abdallah? So yeah. Abdallah said, we're going to do a big study. Mm -hmm. Stein was the one that did 15 patients? Uh, so Fetter was Fetter the did Fetter. 15 yeah. patients. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm sorry. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> so tell me about the Fetter study. That's okay. the one I want you to tell me about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was a total of 15 patients, um, and they were exposed to repeated intravenous ketamine in this study and 
Um, the patients in this study were, um, were yeah, just they were on a, dis, I guess, test their uh, cognition, if I was getting that correct, um, on how, um, how, did, how, I guess, the ketamine would, I guess, affect their memory. And they would perform these different types of cognitive tests, um, a lot of them that I'm, I don't even really know the names of. Um, but yeah, Sarah, was there something else? There were like 20 tests on that. that yeah. So, yeah. so on, the, on the planned study, there were like 20 tests. But I know that one of the tests we've talked about before, one of the uh, kind of measures we've talked about is the CAPS. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, the clinical assessment of PTSD. And, and I think they had a version of that. Yeah. So, so tell me what the outcomes were for this study of 15 patients. What, what happened? What were they looking for and what happened? So they used midazolam. So they were kind of using midazolam as the control or placebo control. The control agent. Right. And so they saw like in comparison to midazolam, there was a 30% reduction in their uh, PTSD symptoms. And it was a pretty like great response in comparison to the midazolam that I think they stopped it early because the effect was much, much greater in this in the patients that received the ketamine versus the midazolam. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember, but I think one in five people got better with midazolam, so the placebo, quote, placebo response was right. one in five. Mm -hmm. And then the response with ketamine was two and three, so about 65, 70%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now, just out of curiosity, and I didn't catch this in the article, was, was this an improvement or was this a recovery article? I think it was improvement, right? It was right? an improvement article. I okay. So, so um, I had a little bit of heartburn about midazolam being the control agent, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and that was part of what spurred us to look at the, um, the review article on benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the hard part, I suspect, is that everybody knows if they're getting a placebo versus ketamine, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so we have some challenges in having a reasonable study that allows um, it allows it to be moderately blinded at least right so so I think one of the things that I'm e even though I scratch my head about midazolam I think the idea was how do you get some sort of agent that you can give IV that gives any sort of response that looks a little bit like midazolam and I think the comment you read Spencer when we were talking about this before was kind of has the same cognitive effect. People are yeah, uh -huh. kind of affected the same way, right? Mm -hmm. um, although I've never thought about uh, midazolam as being a dissociative benzodiazepine. Uh, I have not either. <laughs> yeah, that's a first to me too. <laughs> um, and we talked about dissociative uh, anesthetics yesterday when mm -hmm. we talked about the prisoners that were experimented upon yeah. for, uh, with ketamine. All right, so, so this study though, there was something that was interesting that happened in this study. It was stopped early. And that's very rare. Usually uh, trials that stop early, something bad is happening. In this case, ketamine compared to midazolam was so impressive that the interim analysis allowed them to stop and say, we've already met our endpoints. We don't need to have any more study going on, right? And I think this opened the door for the Abdallah article, uh, which is in Contemporary Current Trials, I think is the name of the article. This is from 2019. And I think the goal is now to have a much larger trial. Right, yeah. So this, they're kind of summarizing and planning this 
multi-center randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial um, with a larger population to study, about 230 um, men and women, or 240 men and women active duty military participants between 18 and 70 years old. And also, it's kind of all over the country, large, large-scale study in um, in conjunction with the Department of Defense and um, Veterans Affairs, and so yeah, it's Big it's study. pretty promising. Like that, they are planning to do this study. I think it's great because I think it kind of opens the window. At least ketamine does for. I guess it works like a band aid almost with. The effects from the studies that we've seen, it, it the effects of ketamine kind of wear off after two weeks, and mm -hmm. um, the patient would have to go in and get another infusion of ketamine. And so the remission of PTSD hasn't been really proven with ketamine. And so the goal, I guess, would be to study the effect of ketamine and in conjunction with cognitive behavioral therapy, trauma-focused, and... All the other or EMDR or exposure therapy. Interesting. Right. So, so this is you talk about it as being a band aid, but I think you are also telling me the symptomatic relief for the people that are taking this uh, treatment is fairly mm -hmm. significant. Right. Now, I, I, you were going to say something, Spencer. I'm oh, sorry. yeah. So, and that that to me that what you were just saying, Sarah, I feel like is one of the key differences that they um, the Stein article, which is a response to the Fetter um, study about on these 15 people was also mentioned how during the study when they were receiving the ketamine infusions there was there was no I guess um, I guess important part of them having to recall their memories while they were receiving the ketamine infusion so they thought that because that wasn't part of the study there really may have been only just temporary effects and if they were actually to be able to do the infusion while they were either recalling the event or going through some kind of psychotherapy, the effects may last longer and the effects may be way stronger and way better. I think there are some studies that have looked at uh, um, ketamine-assisted therapy. Did you guys come across any of those? I haven't read any of those yet. So, I'm not no. sure we ran across that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think that might be something that pops up in future podcasts. We'll see ketamine-assisted yeah. therapy. Yeah, uh -huh. could yeah, be interesting. Sure. Um, the the idea of ketamine does make me a, a bit hesitant. Right? Mm -hmm. We we are aware that uh, physician prescribing of opiates in settings that may not be appropriate. Right? We're not right. talking about stopping opiates for cancer. We're talking about using opiates in conditions where the data doesn't show that it works, right? Very, mm -hmm. very different. Um, we ended up in a place where opiates have, we have as physicians contributed to the opiate crisis, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a little bit hesitant that we're making ketamine a household name, yeah. that the ability to misuse ketamine might, uh, or the desire to misuse ketamine might grow. Mm -hmm. um, the way that ketamine is uh, marketed gives me a little bit of heartburn. So I have some anxiety about this, whether it's yeah. valid or not. I don't know. I don't have a good sense of that. Do you guys have any thoughts about these ramblings and musings yeah. I have? Yeah. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. So I, I did actually a quick Google search about these ketamine clinics that I heard about. And so one of them was this wellness center in, in San Antonio, Texas. 
and they have these proprietary blends of ketamine. Um, so that was a little sketchy on its own, and it's very expensive, like almost $500 per infusion. And this is not covered by insurance, and the effects last, what, two to three, three weeks, and so you're getting, you're spending $1,000 on ketamine once a month. And but hold on, you can join... <laughs> <laughs> you can join the club. Right. They, Explain they, that to they, me. They offer monthly membership programs that cus, cut costs and advertises discounts for members. And, yeah, members of the military and first responders. So they, they offer a military discount. Um, but, yeah, all of that sounds for sure very sketchy. So I, I often say that... Um, I often have said that we mock things we don't understand, right? I think there's a, a proverb out there about that. And so I just want to add a little bit of caution, but there are red flags here for me, right? Mm -hmm. When you have a club membership to get ketamine, that worries me. When you have, quote, proprietary blends that don't have FDA approval, that worries me. Um, now, if, if, it's, if they were to tell me that this is based on randomized controlled trials um, of the proprietary blend, then I get a little bit more... Uh, comforted by that, Definitely. that mm -hmm. this is a group of people that are looking to help first responders and veterans. That means a lot to me. So I'll, I'll take the good with some of the red flags <laughs> right. and, and just be aware that there might be good data here, but this is expensive. Yes, very expensive. Um, How much does ketamine cost? Pennies. Pennies. I, I understand that it's pennies. Yeah. Now, I haven't looked that up recently. Can, can either of you guys Google that while we're talking yeah. about it? Oh, here. Sarah, you go. I, I'll just uh, kind of give a point that I thought was interesting, and maybe you could kind of expound on this, Dr. Andy, a little bit. So um, they kind of talked about oketamine, which uh, sometimes in a special K, right? It, mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely been abused off-label and just... Um, by other people and Mis misused might be the language we uh, use there now. There we go. Yeah, yeah misused. And um, they talk about how it can be a drug that can be abused and um, or misused. Misused. Me. Yeah. And they, they probably said abused yeah. in, in everything you read. That language is being changed. Okay, that's good to yeah, know. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, and I guess it kind of confused me because I guess in a disorder like PTSD, where there is a strong association with increased drug and alcohol dependence or use. Um, is there kind of some contradi contradictions to using an a substance that could be abused to treat the abuse of, or the abuse inside of another um, no, like I, PTSD? I, th I think you're asking the right question, and I, I don't have a good answer to it. I think the only thing we know is the data will tell us, mm -hmm. right? We, we don't have data on misuse of ketamine in the setting of an infusion clinic. Um, having said that, it's a worry it's, that I would have as I'm reading the data, I'd be looking for, uh, are, okay, are you um, giving us measures on substance misuse? And at least with benzodiazepines, there's some evidence that that increases or escalates substance misuse, right? So, so I would worry about it, but I would wait until the data to be sure, mm -hmm. especially if there's, it, it's, it's a difficult thing, right? If you have something that will help somebody get well, do you not give that because of the potential risk? Mm, good point, though. Or do you give it and hope it goes well? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. So it's, it's a fine line. You kind of got to walk almost, it sounds like. It's a yeah. difficult treatment decision. I, I read an article re recently. It was very fascinating. It was about a physician who uh, stood up in an M&M conference and went through uh, a life and death choice for a patient that they were treating and, and asked questions about how they should proceed. 
And it turns out that uh, the entire audience said he should do one thing. And he said, uh, I thought this was very fascinating, he said, I'm going to do the other thing. And I, I think that created a lot of heartburn for people. And he said something very interesting afterwards. And he said, because ultimately the decision about how I go about this is mine. Mm-hmm. And how you tackle those very difficult situations in a position of trying to decide what do I risk for what I gain, um, I think the best way to go about that is to understand the risks as well as you can, your numbers needed to harm, mm-hmm. and also your NTs, the number needed to treat as well as you can. Mm-hmm. And then have an informed conversation with your patients about that. And, and we all have biases work your entire career to eliminate or recognize those biases mm-hmm. as they pop up. But that's the best answer I have. I, love, that's, that, I thought you nailed it, nailed it right on the head. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's yeah. the right answer. It's the best answer I have. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Sarah, you might have the price of ketamine. Um, yes. I'm not sure if this I, is correct. I do know that the nasal, uh, insul- in, I think it's called insufflation device, mm-hmm. is about 1000 bucks a treatment, and I think oh. that's a month long. Oh. But I think just the ketamine in the gallon jar, oh. <laughs> I think is I, very inexpensive. I found an injectable solution, 50 milligrams per milliliter, is around $46 for a supply of 100 milliliters. And those are the injections. Yeah. I think it's that's. I couldn't find. That's the interesting price that they. Yeah, there's going to be a pharmacy price on that. Maybe yeah. we'll figure that out and throw it in the description <laughs> yeah. of the podcast. But, but even so, um, I, I I don't think ketamine is as expensive as the, as the cost of getting treatment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where the costs come from for the people that are doing this. I I keep thinking that if there's competition with the infusion centers that are are based on reasonable data, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for depression, I keep thinking that with competition, the, the cost of those infusions might go down. Right. But I don't, I don't know that I've seen that. I think it's still very expensive to get the infusions. Yeah, yeah. And I think the American Psychiatric Association um, is, was kind of concerned about the popping up of these ketamine clinics, and they kind of put out a statement in April 2017 that kind of a consensus statement on the use of ketamine for mood disorders and kind of saying that there is training that the physician should have before administering ketamine and how to properly screen patients because I feel like if you can pay for it, um, do you actually need it or like are they being properly screened or is it just whoever can pay for this treatment? I kind of feel like um, that anybody who comes to a physician knowing all of the options and says, this is still the one I, I need to try, I think as a physician, that as long as that's a collaborative decision, that's reasonable. I have a lot more heartburn about the idea that um, somebody might go to a clinic because they suffer from depression, mm-hmm. and the first answer every time is, oh, ketamine will fix this, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think... Again, I think it gets back to something we've mentioned before, which is collaborative care with your patients, right? Shared mm-hmm. decision-making. Those kinds of principles go a long way. And if you have a decision made before somebody walks in the door about what might be right for every patient, you're, you're probably thinking, it, you might be thinking more about the money mm-hmm. or about the end of one you just experienced or some other um, you know, data error rather than your numbers and individual care that patients are seeking, right? Mm-hmm. So so cost of treatment certainly affects people. Um, and that's something that isn't just a ketamine issue, right? 
But even more worrisome is if somebody walks through the door, one size fits all rather than let's take a look yeah. at what we're treating here. Mm. But there's there's five proprietary blends, Dr. Rand. Five proprietary blends? Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> more than I thought. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> um, as, as you notice, I'm trying to be very, very cautious about you know, making fun of things that I don't fully understand, right? Mm -hmm. If I were to go maybe to that clinic for a day, yeah. perhaps I would have a different experience. Maybe I'd walk away going, oh my goodness, there's something here. Mm -hmm. And a lot of medicine happens that way. I know we talked yesterday about um, how there's a great deal of uh, case report mm -hmm. data in the anesthesia reports mm -hmm. and that it's been a, a meaningful way to help improve the quality of anesthesia, right? Um, so, so I don't know, but I, uh, you're right. You're right, Sarah. <laughs> 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 All right, what, what have we not talked about up to this point? What have we missed out on? Um, what about, let's talk about our hopes for, for ketamine in the future and kind of where we see that going. I like that. Tell me where you hope ketamine goes. I would like to see the results of that like multi-center study, um, especially the efficacy of ketamine um, compared with an SSRI in combination with some psychotherapy. Um, and there's this whole hypothesis about the actual pathophysiology. I feel like we're still trying to learn pathophysiology of PTSD and yeah. kind of learning more about how the disease actually comes about and coming up with these new therapies that could help. Yeah, I like that. Spencer, what's, what's your hope? I, I completely agree with Sarah. I think the one thing that I want to see is, um, I mean, I guess, Dr. Ron, you were mentioning it, how there is some there is some research out on ketamine uh, in conjunction with psychotherapy and kind of, I guess, in more particular, um, in its use in PTSD and kind of seeing that being more the direction we're going and less of, I mean... I think there there definitely is positives and pros to these ketamine clinics, but I definitely could see putting it in conjunction with psychotherapy being a lot more effective. I, I can imagine that too. Again, I don't know if the ketamine memory impairments make it difficult to learn, True. which is an important part of therapies, um, but but again, the data will tell us. Mm -hmm. So I think my goals are a little bit different. I, I would really like to see... I'm a big fan of having as few barriers in treatment as possible, right? Mm -hmm. How do I eliminate steps so that it's easier for my patients to take care of the things they need to take care of? How do I eliminate steps so that I can get a prescription in somebody's hands more quickly with uh, fewer concerns and risks, right? Mm -hmm. My sense is that the ketamine um, nasal insufflation uh, which is sold, I think, by Johnson & Johnson uh, through Janssen. I think mm -hmm. Janssen has that. Uh, is very, very expensive for what you get. Mm -hmm. For the cost of making uh, racemically pure, um, I, I think it's S, uh, the racemic S mixture, right? So it's a mixture of uh, S-ketamine, not, uh, mm -hmm. not... Is racemic the two together? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not a racemic mix mixture, it's an S-ketamine mm -hmm. uh, compound only, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so the cost of S-ketamine um, being delivered through a device that they built, uh, and it's very expensive, right? Mm -hmm. I would like to see uh, some sort of data. I, I would like to see the National Institute of Health or NIMH jump in and fund studies that, that were pivotal trials that allowed us to 
uh, provide medications that are generic already with an FDA approval. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't have that other than for this very expensive esketamine product that's made by Janssen. And so I'd, I'd like to see um, I'd like to see more access to this medication through government funding mm -hmm. of a generic medication, right? And I'd like to see it done safely yes. so, that, so that we don't uh, create a situation where ketamine seems to permeate the society like marijuana does, like alcohol does, like amphetamines do, mm -hmm. like opiates do, mm -hmm. right? We have a lot of substances that become misused. And, and I'd like to see ketamine be an effective tool, like opiates are mm -hmm. in the right setting, like cannabidiol is for seizures, mm -hmm. right? I'd like to see the right medication in the right place at the right time yeah. and minimize harm. So that's, that's kind of what I'd like. Yeah. And I definitely could see how, you know, lowering the price could give us more um, options to run trials and, you know, increase the, the, the research being done on the topic as well. And, and I'm just hoping the NIMH would fund that yeah. so that they would fund those trials okay. just directly and then and then uh, make the push to have it uh, FDA approved so that people could go read the package and sort the, the pre prescribing information and yeah. prescribe it. Yeah. Other thoughts about this topic? If not, I've got one question for you, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Based on your reading now, are you more likely to refer somebody to a ketamine clinic or less likely to refer somebody to a ketamine clinic who has PTSD? Hmm, probably, I have mixed feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it would just depend. If, if I have, like, tried everything that is, like, SSRIs and therapy and they're still not feeling better and no, sim like, relief for symptoms, then maybe as like a last, last resort. Yeah, I, I can see that. That seems like a reasonable strategy. Again, I'm not sure there's a right answer here. Right. Um, but it does sound like it changed your mind a little bit. For sure. Just the expense of it and the just the short time frame that it works for. The incomplete data, I think, right? We, do, yeah, we don't have all the well. answers we'd like. We don't know about risks for uh, dependence or misuse. I think there's some answers that we'd like to see based on this, at least this study. Mm -hmm. On that note, uh, last, last words. Uh, let's see, Spencer, last uh, final thoughts on this topic. Yeah, I think ketamine has a, I think it does have a bright future, though. I think that um, in the future, and hopefully as more research and trials are run, we'll be able to see ketamine used in a proper way. And I, I, I do see that becoming um, more, access, more accessible to, um, to patients who need it. And uh, just hoping for the best for it. I like that. Sarah? Um, yeah, I, I think it's very promising. And I just, ketamine is a really promising treatment for PTSD, but I feel like more research needs to be done on just PTSD in general and understanding that pathophysiology as well. Yeah, I know that one of the articles we looked at kind of talked about the pathophysiology as a possible explanation. I don't think we have it very well locked down yet. Right. And, and I think I'm with you. I, I'm not sure as, I'm as optimistic about the bright future. Mm -hmm. I'm not pessimistic, but I'm not sure I'm optimistic about mm -hmm. it. Sometimes I think um, we serendipitously find treatments um, by accident, right? I think mm -hmm. we talked about uh, in a previous podcast, atypical antidepressants. I might have mentioned that with you guys yesterday. Yeah. Um, 
how we, I, I think that that was part of our discovery of monoamine oxidase inhibitors, right? And ketamine, which is being repurposed, might teach us something about uh, PTSD. Maybe it's something about long-term potentiation of memories that happens mm. with that uh, glutamate receptor. Maybe it's something else. Mm. Um, but what I'm hoping is that maybe we can find, through a greater biological understanding of ketamine, molecules that allow us to act within the pathway of the, the biological pathway of PTSD in a way that is safer, accessible to a lot of people, um, doesn't maybe cause the psychosis, which these articles didn't really talk about, but mm -hmm. seems pretty yeah. clearly dose dependent based on our previous discussion, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and helps people that clearly are less able to live the lives that they would like to live mm -hmm. because of reliving and trauma experiences, right? So that's, I, I think that's, my best hope for it, but maybe I just need to be a little more optimistic. I, I'm a little cranky today. <laughs> guys, great job. Uh, thank you for being so patient with me as I tried to rework the podcast for you guys and break it into two podcasts. I think you guys were uh, absolute champions about it. Thank you so much. And on that note, team out. Team out. Team out.